Jude, starting in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord and God, our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of what they do not know, or whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for prophets, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, and while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them all of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and, and they, they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk in their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved... Building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the the garment defiled by the flesh. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Even difficult books like this little epistle, from Jude, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you, you give this to us to help us, to, to warn us, to protect us. Thank you, Father, that you're that good Father who doesn't just flippantly let us go on our way, but watches out for us, is always with us through your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray you teach us right now as we look at your word, that you would help us to be aware of the dangers of counterfeit faith. Lord, that we would be willing to examine ourselves, to let your Holy Spirit show us what it is that's going on. And that, Lord, that we would, Lord, that we would be restored and refreshed in, in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That our faith would only be in you, Jesus. You're the object of our faith. Please, we pray you would do this. 
And we prayed in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed says, Amen. Amen. So Jude, this letter is, it is a bit tough going, to be honest. It's a hard one to deal with. And, and for two main reasons. And the first one we're really going to see this week. And the first one is, is the fact that Jude was not written to us, but to first century Messianic Jews. That would be Jews who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as God's chosen king. Now, with this comes the fact that Jude tends to use a lot of what we would might call extra-biblical material. He uses what's called the Apocrypha or Pseudographia, which are these books that were not inspired but could be really helpful. And they were books that were really familiar to a first century audience, but to us, we don't even know. Some of these things are even lost to us. We maybe have bits or pieces, but not the whole thing. And, and so what he does is, in quoting these things, we think, what is he on about? I mean... You know, Michael the Archangel fighting over Moses' body with the devil? I mean, what's that all about? We don't see this anywhere in Scripture. And there's these kind of weird references that we think, what is this about? But when he wrote this to these people, they would have known exactly what it was about. It, it sort of could be like us. Many of us have probably read Pilgrim's Progress or seen a movie version of it or something, which is, I guess, the, the second most uh, highest uh, translated and selling book. I guess after Harry Potter, I don't know. Uh, but it'd be like making references to, to Pilgrim's Progress. And, and even though that's not the inspired word of God, it's a helpful book. And so we make references to it. That's kind of what Jude's doing here with these extra biblical sources. But they're hard for us to understand. So it makes going through a bit tough. But he also quotes a lot of the Old Testament that we should be familiar with. We should know what the Old Testament says, what, what the stories were of how God dealt with His covenant people. If we don't understand how God's dealt with His covenant people, then we won't understand how God deals with His covenant people now. And so it, it's difficult for that reason. But it's also tough because, and this is the second reason, it exposes how easily we can be led astray by false teaching. We don't want to think that way about ourselves. We want to think, no, I'm pretty clever. I can suss things out. I'm nobody's fool. I'm not going to get pulled away in anything. But gosh, it's really easy for us to get pulled away into things. One of the problems is we, we tend to think too highly of human nature. We, we want to think well of ourselves. And so we think the fair thing is to think well of others. That's not bad by itself, except we have to recognize that though we are in, inherently valuable as human beings, we're made in the image of God, so we have an inherent value. We're also totally fallen. Able to, to, to be deceived and often able to deceive others. And also what we tend to do is, is, is we tend to undervalue who Jesus is. Even though we, those of us who claim to be Jesus followers, we can undervalue who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And because we're undervaluing him and what he's done for us, who he is, we tend to look for other things that might tickle our ears or flatter our egos. And so Jude deals with these things. He, he brings forth things that are hard for us to interpret sometimes and things for us, even when we understand, they're hard for us to take. But it's important for us to see this stuff. He, his, his command that he gave to his writers in, in verse 3 was that they would contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. And this is what we're looking at in this little postcard epistle. The, the last, but certainly not the least, of the series in the postcard epistles. And the point that he wants us to see today, the thing that I think that the Holy Spirit wants us to see today, is that we would recognize the dangers of a counterfeit faith. So I want to give you three main things about that. You hopefully will have an A5 note near you, if not on your seat. You might be sitting on it in case you didn't know. But let's look at what, what, what it means to, um, or what the danger is with counterfeit faith. The first thing we need to see is that counterfeit faith, it ignores God's judgment. Jude starts off in verse 5 by saying, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, interesting, some of your versions say Jesus. This seems to be a reference to God the Son. That the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who would not believe. Now, I'm going to give you lots of references that you can look up later. Okay, lots of references. The first one being Numbers chapter 14. I think Jude's probably referring to Numbers chapter 14. You can read the whole story later. 
But in reference, what he's talking about is when, they, after the children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness, they've been pulled out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, God rescued them through the work of Moses to get them out of Egypt. They were supposed to go through the desert, it should have been about 11 months, it took them 40 years. You know why? They didn't believe. They refuse to trust the promises of God. So they actually finally get to the promised land. They're supposed to cross over the river Jordan, enter in the promised land. And what happens? They send 12 spies in. The spies say, hey, giants in the land, they're going to be way bigger than us. We can't handle this. Forget it. It's not worth the risk. Let's not go in. Except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Who say, no way. We got God on our side. We need to believe his promises and go through. So what happens? God basically says, okay, all of you of the first generation, the ones who actually left the wilderness, not the ones that were born during the wilderness, but the ones who left the wilderness, you're all going to die right here because you refuse to believe me. It's been 40 years and you refuse to believe me, so you're not going in. That's a pretty heavy story, isn't it? And yet, this is what, what Jude starts off with. He wants us to recognize that, that there is a judgment from God for those who refuse to believe. And we're not talking about a God who's impatient. Neil rightly prayed today. We serve a God that is so slow to anger. But let me tell you something. If you were to call me a liar for 40 days, I'd probably go, okay, fine, buddy. We're not going to have a relationship anymore. They're calling God a liar for 40 years. The God who brought them out of Egypt miraculously. They saw it. And God says, you know what? There's a judgment there. Now, I want you to hear the words of Jesus because it's important for us that we recognize this is not just Jude, some fired up guy who claims to be a Jesus follower. This is Jude who was the half-brother of Jesus but only saw himself as a bondservant of Jesus. And he got this information from Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 8, listen to this. He says, Jesus continued saying, and he's talking to religious leaders now. He says, you are from below. That's hell, in case you didn't recognize. You are from below. I am from above. You belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Jesus said that. He drew the line that clear. It's me or nothing. Now, that doesn't fit well with our kind of pluralistic thinking, but that is the Jesus of the Bible. He says he's the dividing line. And he tells us that because he wants us not to be deceived about the fact that it's him who loved us and gave himself for us. Look at verse 6. Jude continues this argument. He, he begins to talk about these angels. Now here he's quoting probably a, a, one of these apocryphal books called One Enoch. And he talks about this story that's a, a bit, it's a bit freaky, but just follow with me, Okay. He says, and the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness uh, for the, uh, the judgment of the great day. And then he connects this to Sodom and Gomorrah. You probably, probably know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, that is, in a similar way to these angels that he mentions. He says, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That's not a verse you put in most greeting cards, is it? It's pretty heavy stuff. Now, now here's what he's talking about. Listen, he's talking about this, this, this thing that's refer, referred to in Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God... Mar or, or go into the, to the daughters of men. And there's different theories about that. But Enoch, this sort of extra-biblical book, interprets that story as meaning that angels had sexual relations with women and produced these freaky giant things. Now, whether you believe that or not isn't the point. The point is, he's saying, here's what these angels did. They went from what was, should have been natural to them, not having sex with anyone, to doing something unnatural, having sex with Women. And he says, compare that to Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In their pride, they were so prosperous and so prideful, they began to get into deviant sexual behavior. In fact, what happened with them is, you probably know the story, as, as someone comes into their town, Lot with some angels, what happens? As there's angels come to get Lot out of the town, actually. What happens? These men, perverted men, they decide they want to rape the angels. Now, just in case you're wondering, you can't get away with raping an angel. They're bigger and tougher than you, so it ain't going to happen. But they go to rape the angels. Heavy stuff, dark stuff. 
The point is, what Judah is saying is, God is going to judge. His judgment is against anyone who practices sexual immorality. Now, we don't want to hear that either. We, we live in a day and age where we want to say pretty much anything goes. And it's not just people out there. In the church we do this. I've, I've told the story before, but it's a, to me it's a great illustration. A friend of mine planning a church in Newcastle got invited by the Christian Union to speak at their weekend away. And so he said, great, what do you want to speak on? He goes, we want you to speak about sexuality. So in preparation, he went to the CU and he gave them a, sur- a, a, a survey. This is the, the Christian Union. And, and basically part of the survey was asking the question, how far is too far sexually? In your relationships. Here's where the, the, the median line was drawn. You could be naked in bed, but you couldn't have intercourse. As Christians, you could do that. This is what they thought. Now, now call me old-fashioned, but that's nuts. How could we read the scripture and think that God's okay with that? Don't be wrong. God created sex. I like sex. I have five kids for a reason. But the problem is... God says sex is one man, one woman for life in marriage. That's what he says. And, and, the, and the idea that he's not going to judge people to do this is crazy. Again, listen, listen to what Jesus says. This is not me making this up. Jesus said similar things. In Mark chapter 7, <coughs> Jesus is really clear that the issue is not the behavior but our hearts. We don't have a sex problem, we got a heart problem. He says, For within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things, Jesus' words, come from within. They are what defile you. This is what Jesus said. Now, now, don't get me wrong. The early church and our church today is full of sexually Im- broken people. All of us are sexually... The only person who's not ever been sexually broken is Jesus himself. All of us are sexually broken people. But Jesus saves us. He redeems us. And he calls us to turn from that sin and trust him. See, we do believe in, in this Jesus who's exceedingly gracious. Guys, I couldn't stand before you if, if this God was not so merciful. There, there's a, there's a, not a week doesn't go by that I, I, I'm in my, my office preparing messages and thinking, Am I, should I even be standing up before these people? Because I'm a wretch. I know what goes through my head. Thankful for, be thankful you don't know what goes through my head. But I serve a God who each time I repent forgives and restores. I serve a God that each time I'm tempted, I can turn to you and he gives me the strength to walk away. It's him that does this, not me. This is why Jesus, the first word Jesus spoke, the first word that we have written in his ministry was repent. Turn back to God is what that means. Choose God over your sin. Now listen again, this is what, how Jesus taught Listen to this in Luke chapter 13. Here's what Jesus says. It says, At this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. And the kind of context seems to indicate that someone was going, Oh, Jesus, did you hear about these really bad sinners who, who got died when they were make, who were killed when they were making a sacrifice? They must have been really wretched if God let that happen. And so Jesus says, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all other people from Galilee? Don't forget, Jesus was from Galilee. <laughs> he asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all, he says. Now, this is among his disciples. He's saying it to them as well. Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. That's what Jesus said. This is not some weird fire and brimstone guys who talk like this preaching. This is Jesus. Jesus calls us to repent. And so, therefore, listen... A counterfeit, a counterfeit faith doesn't call people to repent. It ignores God's judgment. Guys, guys, what happens when we ignore warnings? Friends of mine were in California this week, and they had pictures about they couldn't wait to go visit the beaches in California. They get to California, and there's a sign of the beach that says, Warning, shark spotted at this beach. Swim at your own risk. They chose not to swim. You know why? Because they believe the sign. It's not funny. Surfing is one of my favorite things in the world. 
get eaten by sharks? It's not. And they were smart enough to know it's not worth the risk. Hey, with God, there is no risk. When he says, listen, this has to be turned from, it has to be turned from. Are you following me? But a counterfeit faith ignores that. Drop down to verse 14. In verse 14, he's again now talking, uh, quoting from Enoch. He's, he's referring to this uh, apocryphal book, One Enoch. And he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam... That's biblical, it's in Genesis. He prophesied about these men, these kind of false teachers that Judah's writing about. Saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among uh, them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Gee, Jude's not afraid to use the word ungodly, is he? But sometimes we are. Sometimes we're so afraid to act as if someone, hey, I'm just a sinner like everybody else. Yes, you are an ungodly sinner like everybody else until God begins to change you. Until you respond to that command to repent. We're called to pursue godliness. In fact, the Bible says that we should exercise ourselves to godliness. Godliness is a great thing. Getting closer to God, being made more like God, this is what could be better? What, what, what could be a higher goal than that? And yet there are those false teachers, there are those that counterfeit faith that ignores God's judgment. Notice what he says at the, at the end of verse 15 there. What God's going to judge for. He says, um, He's going to judge for all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In other words, God's judgment is against those who slander God's character. To say, my God would never send anybody to hell is to slander God's character. To say, hey, you're a little bit too bad, buddy. I don't think God's going to forgive you is to slander God's character. To say, I know the Bible says that God loved me, but I just think I'm too bad is to slander God's character. This is serious stuff. Judah saying, don't, don't be deceived, man. God's going to judge the guys who do this stuff. Again, Jesus talks about this. Again, he's confronting religious leaders of his day. Matthew 23, 15, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, he says you cross land and sea to make one convert and then turn that person into twice the child of hell you are yourselves. Cool. Just being religious never saves anybody. You, you could be the most disciplined religious missionary in the world unless you turn from your sin and put your faith completely in Jesus. You're still lost. You're still under God's judgment. And God doesn't want that for you. That's why you're here today, if you didn't know. You might have come for whatever reason you came, but you're here today because God wants to make sure you know that He can and is willing to save anyone who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. So that's the first thing we need to, to recognize about counterfeit faith. It ignores God's judgment. L listen, I know there's a lot of visitors today, and, and I... I have no idea what your background is or where you come from, but if you are part of a church that isn't teaching that there's a God who judges sin, did so on the cross, and will so when He returns for those who reject the cross, if you're in it, leave that. You don't have to come here, but leave that church. Because we serve a God that loves us enough to warn us. Listen, we're not being friends or lovers or good neighbors to anyone if we don't ever, ever, or we're never straight about this. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you should... I just wanted to say, neighbor, nice to meet you. You're going to hell. There. My conscience is clear. No, it's pointless. But I am saying, when people attack faith in Jesus, say, how can you say that Jesus is the only way? That you have to say, guys, listen... <laughs> He has to be the only way. If he's just one of many ways, what are the other ways? Do all ways lead to heaven? That's really confusing. God really messed up there if all ways lead to heaven because does that mean I can be Hitler and get to heaven? Yeah, I know we always use Hitler. He's the favorite one to use, but he's just easy. 
No, we all believe there's a judgment somewhere. Praise God that He Himself took on flesh and said, this is where the judgment is. He draws the line. Counterfeit faith wants to ignore that. Next thing, in verses 8 to 13, counterfeit faith produces bad fruit. Look at verse 9, or verse 8, sorry. Verse 8, these all, likewise also these dreamers, referring to these false teachers in their midst, these men who had snuck in unaware, people had snuck in unaware, these dreamers, now that could be a reference to the fact that they said, I had a dream from God and this is what it means. And hey guys, God does give people visions and dreams. The Bible teaches that, but we do need to, to test those things against the scriptures, okay? So it could be that, or it could just be that they're living after their own imagination. But he says, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh. Notice, reject authority. This is the main point in this section. And speak evil of dignitaries. Then he gets into this weird story that is found in this extra-biblical book, supposedly written about Moses. It says, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he was disputing about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a violent accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, here's, here's the point that he's, he's making. He's saying Michael, who's really, there's only two angels ever named in Scripture. One is Michael, one is Gabriel. They're both referred as archangels, which would kind of infer there's some sort of a hierarchy of angels. But God knows our propensity to worship things bigger than us and not him. And so he doesn't tell us too much about angels. But he does talk a lot about this guy, this angel Michael, this archangel Michael. And we do get this impression that Michael is like the highest ranking angel. And so the point that Jude is making by quoting this strange book of Moses is basically saying, listen, if Michael, who has the highest rank in heaven of created beings, will not rebuke a fellow created being, that's who the devil is, is a fellow created being, a fallen archangel, then, then who are we? Who are we to act like we have more authority than they do? Now, I don't think this is saying that, um, that we as believers can't have authority over the demonic. That's a whole other Bible study. But what this is saying, listen, what this is saying is clear, right? That what false teachers do is they refuse to see any authority greater than themselves. They, they refuse to see authority in themselves. And in this context, I think it's <coughs> pretty clear that the authority that, the, that Jude is referring to is what we might call the authority of the apostles' doctrine. What the apostles said about Jesus. Now, now I say that because if you go down to verse 17, of course, uh, he tells them, remember what was spoken by the apostles' doctrine. So he, didn't, he never says, remember what Enoch said or remember what Moses said. Or, or he, he quotes those books, he uses them for illustration. But when it comes to authority, he says, what do the apostles say? It's their doctrine. Now again, this fits with what Jesus said. Listen. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, speaking to his disciples, his apostles, he says, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. Anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. Now in one general sense that applies to any believer in Jesus when we try to share the gospel. But this applies specifically to the apostles. That their words had authority. You see this when you read the, the apostles' epistles, their letters. You see how Peter says, look, we're not making this stuff up. We were eyewitnesses of who Jesus is and what he did. John says a similar thing in his epistle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're writing to the Corinthians, he says, any of you who think you're, you're spiritual, prove it by this. This is 1 Corinthians 14, you can look it up. He says, here's how you can prove that you're actually spiritual. No, I'm speaking directly for God, that my words have authority. Can you say that? No, if you do, you're one of the false teachers, just so you know. <laughs> so don't say that. No, but the apostles could. And so false teachers want to appeal to themselves as their own authority. So they reject the authority of God. Now, I've heard a lot of guys apply this to, hey, I'm the pastor of this church, therefore when you're coming against me, you're rejecting authority. And that's a bit of a dodgy application, I think. Now, if I'm telling you what God says, 
and it's very, very clear, and you want to reject that, well, it's not me that you're rejecting, it's God's word. Now, we can agree to disagree on, on secondary issues, but the stuff about salvation is pretty clear in Scripture. And to say, well, that's your opinion, John, is not rejecting my opinion, it's rejecting the Scripture. Do you understand? Can you see how serious this is? It might be important at this point to make sure that we understand how these false teachers would have snuck in. In the early church, they didn't meet like this. It wasn't like a bunch of people looking forward as one guy was preaching or a group were leading the song. That's not the way they led. They would meet together, but if they were in a, in a gathering in a, in a group, it was usually in a home, a rich person's home, that space. You need to have all the women on one side and all the men on one side, right? And they basically, they may have a short teaching from one of the elders and stuff, but normally what they do is they'd, they'd break bread together. They'd have a meal together, like we do on the fourth Sunday, right? And, and when they break bread, what would happen is they would, just, they would celebrate what Jesus has done for them, how they're one in Christ, how they're forgiven because of Christ. They'd celebrate this. And there, this would be a chance when specifically the men would begin to kind of share back and forth about what God's speak to them or about the insights they had to these things. And so it was more open than, than we kind of are now. One of the reasons this tradition kind of developed was because there were so many false teachers. Eventually, the, the leaders of the early church said, okay, stop, okay, stop. Only let a couple people talk because it's getting way off base with these guys. But they were sneaking in and just kind of gabbing away. We, in a sense, make ourselves susceptible to that because we have a 20-minute break where we encourage you guys to share with each other. And guess what? I am sure at times there's some heresy flowing around. So it can't just be me from the pulpit dealing with this. It's all of us recognizing what's the gospel, what is salvific, in other words, what's about salvation and what's not. What can we agree to disagree? Because there's a lot of stuff here that we disagree on. But we can't disagree about who Jesus is and what he's done. See, the, the one part of that bad fruit that comes forth this is the rejection of authority, specifically the authority of the Word of God. It worries me. It really does concern me. The trend in the evangelical church to make history equal to Scripture. We lost a pastor last year who bought into that lie. Heartbreaking. That if you read the Scripture, you'd never get that. You'd never get the idea that tradition was as authoritative as Scripture. That doesn't mean we throw away tradition. We need tradition. We need to know what the early church fathers believed. We need to know how these guys interpreted the Scriptures. We desperately need that. But the authority is the Scriptures themselves. That's what the Reformers rediscovered in the 15th to 17th century. The point is this. The bad fruit that comes from false teacher is a rejection of authority. You know what I found too? The more people question the word of God, it's this pattern. They begin to question, well, that's your interpretation. And, and they then think, well, can we actually even understand this? And it becomes to, is this really God's word? Then it becomes to, there is no authority. And it becomes to, I don't believe anymore. When I was a youth worker in the States, there was a book that we had recommended. It's, it's, I still think it's a pretty good book. Not perfect. It, there were some things I didn't agree back then. I still don't agree now. But it was a pretty good book. It was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it was, a, it was a challenge to the modern dating sort of culture that had infiltrated the church. A guy wrote it by the name of Joshua Harris. He ended up writing several other books, one of which was really good called Humble Orthodoxy. Very good book. You may or may not know this about this guy, Joshua Harris, but Joshua Harris decided that all that book I wrote about dating was completely wrong. Didn't kind of just say some of it was wrong. He said, let's check it out. Then I think I was wrong about this. Now he's at a place where he says, I am no longer a Christian. This is what happens when we say, it's my opinion or my perception of church history or my perception of doctrine. No, it's what scripture says. Which is why we have to wrestle together with it. So the bad fruit, rejection of authority. Also, verse 11, a bad fruit is the exaltation of self. Jude quickly gives us three characters who are all exalting themselves. One is Cain. You can find the story about him in Genesis 4. One is Balaam. You can find the story about him in Numbers chapter 22 to 25 and also chapter 33 of Numbers. And the third one is Korah, who you can find the story of him in Numbers chapter 16. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to just kind of do this really fast, okay? Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, you guys know the story, right? 
God, God says to, to, to Cain, hey, where's your brother? Oh, I don't know, my own brother's keeper. And what had happened? Of course, he killed his brother. Why did he kill his brother? Because he was jealous. Because God had accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. To make a long story short, Cain's issue was, God had said, here's what I want. Cain said, no, I'll just give you what I think is best. It's what we call self-righteousness. What I, if I'm giving God my best, that certainly has to be enough. God says, no, that's not the way it works. Cain was guilty of offering self-righteousness. God called him on it. In fact, what happened is, God could have killed him, but didn't. And just put a mark on him. He went and, and created a city with the most violent city in history up to that time. Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. You can find the story again, Numbers 22 to 25. Balaam's a prophet of God. He gets hired by the enemy of, of, of God's people to curse God's people. He's, he, he acts spiritual. Well, I can only do what God tells me to do. Then he goes to, to say, okay, I'm going to curse God's people. But all that comes out of his mouth are blessing. I told you this is all I can do. This happens a few times. And what happens finally is, is that um, the enemies of God's people get frustrated with Balaam. And so he goes, I'll tell you what. Here's how it works. If, rather than me curse them, just send your, your hottest ladies to the camp, the guys will stumble in a second. These Israelite guys have no self-control. Send them the hotties, and everything will be fine. And what happens? That's what happens. And, and Israel falls greatly. And why did Balaam do that? For money. He did it for money. Korah. Korah was around when Moses was around, and Moses was a busy guy, probably taking on too much for himself. And so Korah just says, hey, man, you're doing way too much for yourself. Don't we all have God's spirit? Is, is kind of, I'm paraphrasing, it's basically he says, aren't we all God's children? Why, why are you exalting yourself? Now, there's some truth to what he said, but he wasn't saying it because he was concerned for Moses. Korah was saying it because he had selfish ambition. He wanted to exalt himself. You see, this, this is what we have. Cain was killed for his self-righteousness, or at least banished for his self-righteousness. Balaam compromised for selfish gain. Korah rebelled for selfish ambition. Self is what pollutes the church. And false teachers love to exalt the self. They love it. Listen to this. This is, again, the words of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, If anyone desires to come after me, let him exalt himself. Is that what it says? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, the word for life there is suke, soul. You can even say it speaks of our individuality. The, way, the one whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, see, Jesus doesn't call us to, to slander ourselves. I'm so bad. I'm so wretched. He says, get your eyes off yourself. Deny yourself. It's not about your self-righteousness, your selfish gain, your selfish ambition, your self-pity. It's about me. Jesus said, it's about me. Pick up your cross and follow me. False teachers will produce the bad fruit of exalting self. Lastly, verses 12 to 13, about this bad fruit. They bring damage to God's people. Look at verse 12. In verse 12 it says, These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Now, Jude is probably quoting from Ezekiel chapter, paraphrasing Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to, to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? The indication there is they're feeding themselves on the sheep. In other words, Jude is saying, what's doing damage to God's people are shepherds who eat but never feed. They consume the people for their own benefit. Look at verse 12 again. 
He says, these are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Two metaphors that, that make one point. These are pastors who make big promises. Hey, we got rain coming. Light of rain, baby. Fruit. There's going to be fruit. God's going to do great things. But it never produces. Proverbs talks about these, and Jude's probably quoting Proverbs here, paraphrasing Proverbs, that says, whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. And then in verse, first part of verse 13, he says this, they're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for who is the preserve the blackness of darkness forever. The idea of wandering is the idea of instability. These are all things about their character, but I want you to notice too, here I think Judah's probably referring to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 15 or 57, 20, where Isaiah said, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. This is the damage that's done by false teachers, by a counterfeit faith. God's people are damaged because they're never really fed. God's people are damaged because they're giving promises that aren't promises for God, so they never really produce. God's people are damaged because the, the, those who are leading them, all they can do is expose their own muck and mire. Jesus warned against this. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 15 to 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's amazing how we will listen to people because they're good at speaking and we know they're involved in all kinds of rubbish. Why? Why would we justify that? Oh, there's some good things that come out of that guy. Oh, we're all sinners. Yeah, but man, Jesus warned against false teachers and false prophets. And Judah's saying, these guys pollute your love feast. In fact, the word says spots in verse 12. Some of your versions might, uh, might say reefs, reefs. So like, you know, something that's underwater you can't hit, uh, you can't see. And a reef, of course, is the most dangerous thing to a ship because you can't see it, but it'll destroy the ship if the ship runs against it. He's saying this is serious stuff. So quickly, the last bit we want to look at, verses 16 to 19. So we've already seen counterfeit faith ignores God's judgment. It produces bad fruit. But here's the last thing, really important. Counterfeit faith speaks falsely. It speaks falsely. So far, Jude's focused on the character of these false teachers and the counterfeit faith that is among them. But now he's going to talk about what actually comes out of their mouth. He says first of this, verse 16, they are grumblers and complainers walking according to their own lusts. In other words, these guys are complaining instead of giving thanks. Now, now listen, I know life is hard. And, and if you, those of you who know me well know that I probably complain more than I, well, I do complain and it's bad. I'll be honest, right? I can be an Eeyore Christian. You know what I'm talking about? You know, everything's horrible. Can't be bothered. Life's so hard. I can be that way. But that's pocus. It's not right. When Jesus' good friend Lazarus died, and he saw Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, weeping over this, he wept with them. He grieved over this. But knowing what he was going to do, here's what we read about what Jesus said and how he prayed in John chapter 11. It says, Then they took the stone away from the place where the dead man was lying. It was Lazarus' was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is saying, listen, God, I'm going to pray out loud and I'm going to give you thanks out loud because I know you want to raise this guy from the dead. And I want these people to hear so that they know that I'm able to raise the dead. Do you believe in a God who can raise the dead? Do you believe in a God who raises up a dead marriage? A dead life? A dead soul? Because resurrection is a historical fact and an illustration of what God does in our lives now 
and is going to do for us physically in the future. Resurrect. See, what's great about this too is what, what does Jesus do? He thanks God for what God's going to do. See, false teachers want to focus about what's, what's missing, what's lacking, what's not good. The church is this and the church is that and the church is this. But thank you, God, that one day we're all going to be sorted out. You know, even people in those dodgy churches that I told you to leave, God's going to sort them out. He's going to bring to repentance those who are willing to, to turn to Him. I know some guys that were pretty rubbish pastors who God has turned around and is using mightily. We can give God thanks. God, you're the one that's in control, not us. You know how to restore your people. You're the God of resurrection. These guys complained. What else did they do? Verse 16, And they mouthed great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So these guys are using flattery instead of just being helpful. Now, let me be clear about flattery. I'm not talking about telling somebody like, hey, that was a good thing that you did. I really appreciate that. Or, oh, your shirt looks nice today. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. This is someone who's doing this to gain advantage, okay? They're trying to manipulate to gain advantage. And it makes me think about in John chapter 13 when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. You guys probably know this, that, that foot washing was something that was meant to be done in that first century as sort of the, the, the sign of hospitality. And when they are together for this really important meal that they're going to have, uh, there's no servant there to wash feet. And of course, the apostles are like, well, I'm not the servant. I'm not going to wash feet. So what happens? And foot washing was important because, guys, if you were wearing sandals all the time and walking through sewage, and, man, your feet would be nasty. And so if you're going to be comfortable and everyone who's eating is going to be comfortable, then things need to get washed. And so what happens? Jesus, does he stand up and go, your feet stink. It's horrible. Go outside and wash your feet. Disgusting. Did he do that? No. Did he say, your feet smells fantastic. It's wonderful to be. I knew that anyone following me would never have stinky feet. Did he do that? No. He got up. He took off his outer garment. He wrapped himself in a robe. And he washed the disciples' feet. And then he said them this. He said, listen, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. See, we don't need flattery. Hey, you're great, man. You got this. You're fine. Everything's wonderful. No. Nor do we need, you are rubbish. You're the most rubbish, rubbisher I know. I can't believe you even dare call yourself a Christian. We don't need that either. What we need is, let me help you get your feet clean. That's what we need. False teachers don't want to do that. They either want to condemn or condone. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says, But you, beloved, remember the words that were spoken before by the Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that they would be mockers in the last day who would walk according to their own ungodly Lusts. Now, Peter tells us that a lot of the mockery that happens is this mockery that says, when's Jesus coming back? You're all about Jesus coming back. You're all about when we get to heaven. What about now, man? We've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus. Come on. And they mock it. They're all about mockery instead of about hope. I don't know about you, but I couldn't even sing that song about getting to heaven. And what an amazing promise that we have. That God is going to give us what He's promised. The world that we all want. Where righteousness reigns. Where all injustice is dealt with. Even the junk inside our own hearts. Wow. That's our hope. False teachers want to mock that. Jesus wants to exalt that. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. And he's talking about the very last days there in Mark 13. And he's talking about the fact there's going to be people who say, here I am, I'm Jesus, why don't you come follow me? False prophets will say, here, Jesus is with us, come follow us. And Jesus says, no, you wait. You wait till I come back just like I left. That's your hope. 
Lastly, I'm just about done. He says in verse 19, these false teachers are sensual persons. That is, they're people that go by their emotions or their own fleshly natural desires. He says, who cause division, not having the spirit. This is important. Because Jude is saying that these false teachers that have crept in, these, this counterfeit faith, is evidence that these people aren't actually saved. They don't have the Spirit. It's, the, it's the God's Holy Spirit that shows us we need Jesus, that calls us to believe in Jesus, and then gives us new life as we put our faith in Jesus. And so he says they don't have the Spirit, he's saying they're not actually saved. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? But this is so important for us to recognize. Because there's a reality here that he's saying these people actually cause division. They actually split up God's people because of the things that they say and the way that they act. Now, obviously Jude here is confronting, isn't he? Jude here is bringing some really clear correction to people that may be false teachers. And we're going to see next week that there's a way that we need to to be distinct about how we correct different kinds of people. We're going to look at that next week in the last few verses. But just just to close us up here about the, the, the way that these false teachers speak, about the way counterfeit faith speaks. It brings division instead of gentle correction. Jesus said this. I'll close with this verse. Jesus said, salt is good for seasoning. Salt is a preservative, right? It, it, it holds back rot. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have a quality of salt among yourselves. In other words, we should be preserving each other through gentle correction and live in peace with each other. So, so what Jesus is encouraging us is not what's happening here. What, what Jude's talking about. Jude's talking about people who either want to just complain about everything and cause division and bring people to follow them or people who want to act like everything's fine, you can do whatever you want, doesn't matter, God doesn't judge. And Jesus says, neither is right. What we need is to be the kind of people that love each other enough, that are committed to each other enough, that we sprinkle enough salt on each other when it's needed. That our speech is with grace, but we always season it with salt. That we gently correct each other because we know we have this great hope in Jesus. Folks, it's really important that we recognize the dangers of counterfeit faith. Because the faith that's been once delivered from all is a faith that saves us. It's a faith that people need to see and understand clearly. Amen? And Father, I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't yet know you. Lord, we've talked about a lot of big, heavy things, probably hard to understand. But Father, we pray that you would do for them what you've done for us, that your Holy Spirit would help them to begin to understand that the pieces would come together that the penny would drop, that they would understand that you, Lord Jesus, and you alone are Savior and Lord. You're King of kings. You're Lord of lords. You're worthy to be trusted. You're good and you do good. And our hope is your return. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jesus, for being willing to die for us. That we can know that we're completely forgiven and we can know that we're your children. We've been adopted because of your work. Thank you, Jesus, that that because you're alive, we can be guaranteed that we're going to be resurrected. It's not a pipe dream. It's not pie in the sky. It's truth. It's reality. Soon to be history. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus and confirming this. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to walk with you today. And we pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would be willing to ask questions, that we'd be able to answer those questions and encourage them in their walk with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name.